Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to a mechanical engineer turned entrepreneurial tech wizard. And that person is Wayne Stridham, the CIO and CTO at The Virtue Lab. So let's not delay. Let's get Wayne into the space to share his enlightening stories and knowledge. Welcome, Wayne. Welcome to CTO Confessions podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. What do you do and who do you work for? Um, my name is Wayne Stratum. I'm originally a South African-born uh, mechanical engineer who, through many different uh, trials and, and uh, ways of going through my career, have become a CTO in the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a journey. But yes. I work for a company called The Virtue Lab. We specialize in a number of digital um, solutions and products that we cater to a number of different industries. So we specialize from oil and gas to the events industry to drones to film studios i mean we, we do quite a big net that we cover wow yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come to that in a minute because i think it's a really intriguing company especially in this kind of world uh the changed world that we all live in and uh and and maybe it's kind of changed forever um you, your journey then you described that you're a mechanical engineer to uh, a technical uh chief technology officer i mean how did that happen what what happened <laughs> um, well, it's, a, it's an interesting story, actually. Um, growing up in post-apartheid South Africa, um, there were only two or three real choices that I could have gone through. It was either going to be an academic career, a military career, or a engineering career. Um, I come from a family of engineers, so I was kind of just shepherded through that little pathway. Um, yep. so I trained uh, traditionally as a mechanical engineer. I started working in um, ship repair and in boilers at a you know, as part of my younger starts into that field and then started specializing in oil and gas. So I really sunk my roots into petrochem. Um, and in and amongst my journey to that, I found that uh, while, while suited to engineering, because I have an engineer's mind, um, there were a lot of different avenues that I was starting to chase in terms of where my interests lay. One of those was about, you know, very complex uh, planning and scheduling. I, I just found that I had a real knack for creating schedules and reading quite large um, project data and then leading project teams of quite a big size. So in my career in oil and gas, I've led small teams of three or four people up to large uh, multi-million dollar installation and projects where I had a few hundred people under me. So I would range between um, the different ones and I always preferred the more complex stuff because it just, I really enjoy challenge. Mm. And in that route, I, I started noticing quite a disparity between um, the different tiers of workforces. So again, post-apartheid South Africa left a lot of the, the general populace uh, as previously disadvantaged. They didn't have access to education or um, the sort of things that could have got, given them the right head start. So I learned or I studied quite intensely as a learning and development specialist on behalf of the government. And I, was, I became quite proficient in developing course material and training material um, teaching people, assessing them, moderating, uh, et cetera. And in and amongst that journey of getting into learning and development, I started 
teaching myself as first and then going for traditional training on how I could improve both the project management stuff as well as the learning. And I started always being a bit of a tech head in the background, um, getting propelling myself to find out how we could innovate in the industry, how we could bring new technologies to play. Um, and then I just started studying computer science on top of that and yeah. went to tech. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it sounds like you've been working on some pretty large projects. I, I guess the kind of opportunities that you got uh, from your kind of early career. One thing I'm curious about is, is that what did you learn from your kind of mechanical engineering days, you know, working on the ship, ships and stuff that you could, uh, lessons for this kind of tech world now? Are there any kind of nuggets? Um, there were. There, uh, you learned very quickly on how to, how to segment your work and how to deliver on a deadline because... In, in large-scale engineering projects, as it is in, in large-scale software. Um, it's a little bit different with, with Petrochem, though. Um, for example, if you're doing a maintenance shutdown on an oil and gas plant or in the oil fields or even on an oil rig, uh, refineries produce a few million pounds worth of oil a day. So every time that they have to bring their plants down, they're losing mm. large scales of cash. So for a typical maintenance shutdown and, and work like that that would take two weeks to execute, you would normally have to plan two years in advance for that. So you learn very strategic and very stringent ways in which you plan very um, processed ways of compiling your data and communicating that across quite a large, diverse range of people. Yeah. And so when did you realize that you were kind of good at this? I mean, there's two things that you've kind of know, uh, pointed out, which is that you love complexity. You're almost like a magnet, you know, to it, or it's a magnet to you. Um I mean, what, what, what's the kind of essence that in your leadership style that you think works for that or does work for that? Um, it's it's because my, my approach to, to handling large, complex pieces of, of workload or data is it's, it's very methodical and it's very um, strategic. So uh, while I'm able to handle things as they come, like shoot from the hip in the Wild West, uh, I much prefer a structured approach where you can properly plan out and focus um, your resources, focus your schedule, focus your budgets, focus your teams, align them correctly. Because um, what we found is time is money and people is money. And the more time people are inefficient in their day to day, the more money you lose, the longer it takes for you to get to market. And oil and gas, it's very niche because there's specific areas of focus that most people will sit on. Software is a lot more cutthroat and it's a lot more I need it right now. And there's 50 other people who can do it as well. So yeah. if you're not leading the pack, if you're not coming to industry first, and if you're not delivering a really polished and good product, you know, your, your end user in the market is spoiled for choice in quite a, quite a lot of the offerings. Yeah. And they can go from one to the other. So for you to try and be the best, you've got to be good in your practice beforehand. Brilliant. That's great. So coming back to your company, um, what's the problem that it's solving in the market? Just kind of explore some of the uh, products that you've created around that. Well, there's there's a number. There's there's our flagship product. Um, it's probably the easiest one to talk around. Is um, a product called VirtuWorks. Um, and because of the COVID pandemic, it's been, you know we, we all know COVID's been an accelerant for a number of different innovations in the tech industry as well as other industries as well. Um, and we had developed a number of applications in-house using visual data management to represent content for a number of clients. And we've been able to then use that and turn it into a tool 
that would allow us to create a virtual environment that would allow us to host meetings and events and remote work. So that came out of one of the services that we do is uh, we do a lot of drone capture. So within the UAE, uh, within South Africa and within Norway and the UK, we have drone divisions and, and pilots in all those locations. And we serve everything from events industries to construction industries where we will go and scan and collect large volumetric data that we will use for a number of different applications. And for the representation of that visual data, we can you know, we would represent it for the clients in VR, we would do it in AR, we would convert those into models and put them in animations. And one of the things that we thought would be really cool was to take that same data from a scanned um, collection and put it into a virtual online platform that we could use avatars to walk around and explore these different places. Cool. Um, what that allowed us to then do is give our clients a different portal. Where we could say, look, we've gone and we've captured your building or your field or your thing. Um, do you want to walk around it? Do you want to review it in specific ways? And when different stakeholders and members of the company saw that, they were like, oh, that's interesting. Could we, could we put a boardroom in there and have a meeting? Could we put a classroom in there and deliver a lesson? Could we have offices in there and get everyone to meet? And we were playing around with it and we were using it as an internal tool. Um, being a global company, there's a lot of time spent on planes traveling to Dubai, traveling to Norway, traveling to Africa, traveling to the States. And it was a lot easier and a lot quicker and a lot more efficient to just get people with avatars into a meeting room. Then COVID hit and we were like, wow, this actually has helped us a lot because we were being able, we were able to stay as productive as we would have been because we were doing face-to-face as we were already in there. And our senior management team said, look, this is something that we could probably turn into a product and let's get it out to market, which yeah. is what we're doing now. Yeah. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, as it is. <laughs> and I'm kind of curious, and I guess there's kind of some audience out there asking, you know, uh, this kind of virtualization of meeting, because I, I love being in a room with somebody, you know, getting around a whiteboard and yeah. you know, uh, and taking turns or fighting for the pen, you know, uh, that old game. What's, so, I mean, has that completely been solved? Does this kind of virtual space solve all that? Um, does it make it as, as enriched environment? Um, I think it does, but it, it comes down to the strength of the tool and it comes down to the application of the tech as well. So, for example... You look at our product, we, we've broken down into four verticals because we're solving four different needs. Um, we're focusing specifically on configs, mice, and events. So you, like you would have at Excel or you could go in and have like a hall full of booths and you could go network with people and check out new products. So that's one area that we're focusing on. Another one is remote work. So that's more, instead of being in and out the whole time, you're kind of focusing around um, people who are going to be on the platform morning till afternoon, working in teams, having meetings, being a bit more productive in a virtual space. So targeting remote or hybrid teams. Uh, the third vertical is looking at education. So there the toolkit needs to change again to adapt to a classroom. And it's, also if your audience is, is children or adult-based education, the toolkits that you will need is different. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one will be more larger scale gatherings, could be events, could be festivals, could be concerts, could be just recreational socialization. That's just for people to hang out and chill. And <clears throat> when I go in and I have to pitch this sort of thing to a potential customer, um, I've one, I'm one person who travels a lot for for uh, I do a lot of events when when everything was open up. And what I found was if it was a trip to Vegas to go to CES, you don't not get on the plane to go to Vegas because who doesn't want to go to Vegas and go check out some cool stuff. But mm. if there's six different types of events that are all at the Excel and I, you know, it's, it's quite cumbersome for me to like have to lose a day of productivity, get on a train, commute in, put my nose in someone's armpit on the tube, get off, get another tube, get to the Excel, then stand in the queue, then get to the booth. I would save a lot more time by just logging in, going to the booth, 
having the discussion that I want to meet with someone from Google or someone whatever, get what I need, log off and I can carry on with my day. So yes. I think it's going to be a big hybrid between what suits you. Do you want to go to the one in London? For me, I can get there whenever I want, but someone who's never been to London might go, I want the business trip to get to there. Yeah. Uh, I think it's down to a matter of preference, really. Yes. Yeah, I can see the time saving quality and you, you get the information you want. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I would, I'd love to kind of uh, attend one of these kind of virtual events to see how it feels. And uh, I, I did uh, go onto a webinar a couple of um, weeks ago. I don't know if this is one of your tools, but it was uh, where you could actually, you had a set of seats. So you could jump into the kind of question seat and then, uh, you know, you're going to get, you can then get uh, the opportunity to ask a question and what have you. Um mm -hmm. So obviously during the COVID period, this is you've kind of been well placed. To, uh, for the, the the situation is uh, very good for your products, and has it been quite explosive in terms of demand? It really has. Um, we weren't expecting it to be as popular as it was. Um, it, we were actually getting a lot of demand while we were still in beta, um, with a lot of people very hungry to get on the platform. And I mean, there's two types of audience. There's the end user who wants to be able to attend events and to get out of the, the Zoom fatigue, um, which is a term that's getting thrown around a lot. And I think after, you know, sitting in front of a screen and just looking at a single webcam uh, for a year, the Zoom fatigue is real. And what we found in our trial runs initially was that the sense of being able to walk around an environment and speak to other avatars and sit in a seat and or sit in a, you know, you can have your events on the moon, you could have it underwater, you, you can really go to town when it comes to digital. <laughs> There was a huge appetite in the market for that. And we've been inundated with um, sales requests from both, you know, small intimate uh, indie studios uh, versus big corporates who want to start either throwing events or have large scale teams um, jumping on the platform to work. So Wayne, the, the industries that you're kind of working in uh, with this kind of product, I mean, is it pretty much across the board or is it a specific area that you're focusing on at the moment? Uh, it's across the board. So we're, we partner with a lot of third-party suppliers to do some of the stuff that we wouldn't have to want to do ourselves, like um, the cross-platform multiplayer. We wouldn't want to have to reinvent servers for that. You know, there's a there's a very suitable products out there, which is a lot easier to scale um, off the cuff. And it's technically a lot cheaper to run until you get to that margin point where you go over the, the, the packs per month. But we, we're running events currently in South Africa. We're running, we've run a few in the United Kingdom. We've run some in Asia. We've had uh, attendees from Dubai already. So there is a big uh, spike in interest that's coming from the States, um, which we're quite keen to get into the market as well. Um, yep. So yeah, we're, we're global and we're, we're operating everywhere. Brilliant. Brilliant. And, uh, So I was going to say, is it worth kind of say uh, putting a plug in there, saying we can go, you can go to your website and see a demo, or is that how would you, how would you like people to kind of know more about your product? Um, yeah, you anyone can just go to virtuworks.io. That's v-i-r-t-u-w-o-r-x.io, and there is both the website companion and the 3D platform. So the nice thing about that is you you do get a few virtual event websites, um, which are a lot more targeted to people who don't want to have to download software or there might be security concerns at um, the larger corporates. And if that's the case, the, the events that we house, which is something that's not really been done in the industry before, is you, you will find um, the hop in or the swap card that has uh, the website-based events, and then you will find other 3D-based avatar platforms that try and do the same sort of thing that we're doing in the 3D event. But what we do is we do it cross both. So if you right. have a booth in the website, you also have a booth in the platform. Your exhibitors can man from either side and you can attend either way. If you just want to hop in and off, you can jump just onto the website, register, go and 
and leave. Um, and on the website, on the first two or three pages, it explains the two to you. So you can say um, you can join uh, VirtuWorks Connect, which is the website version, and then just register. Or you can ask for VirtuWorks Immerse, and then you'll get a download link for either the Windows or the Mac installer, which will install the software for you. You register for an event, and you go in and start creating your avatar. Yeah. So I encourage the audience listening to go and check that out. We'll give a link at the bottom of the podcast page. So uh, yeah, that'll be, uh, thank you for giving that information. I look forward to taking a look. So coming back to yourself, Wayne, um, what's the thing that really drives you uh, and get, makes you jump out of bed in the morning and go, woohoo, you know? Um, the passions I've got is, is I think we're living in interesting times, not just because of COVID, but technological advancements are happening proportionately to, you know, the, the demand in the industry and the capabilities that we as a species have been able to foster in terms of you know, what we can do with a microprocessor, what we can do in terms of server advancements in code. So every year you, you attend events like E3 or whichever, and you'll see huge advancements in virtual reality. You'll see huge advancements in AI and machine learning. IOT, RPA, like all of these are terms that are becoming commonplace for the everyday that you couldn't have had this conversation 10 years ago. Yeah. So for me, it's it's just finding out what's next and, and staying ahead of the curve, keeping your thumbprint on that pulse and just being able to adopt and manipulate their tech to give the best possible solution to our clients. Yeah. I kind of envisage you as a, a modern day alchemist. You know, you're looking at the different elements or aspects of their nature and seeing how how can I combine them, you know? How, yeah. What would happen if I mix these two little things together, you know? Yeah, uh, it, it's exactly like that. I, I, I very much like to see what the art of the possible is versus what's currently being done. Yeah. And I like to try and push boundaries and challenge perception as much as I can because yeah. I, I really feel that we're not utilizing half the tech as much as we could be. And it's interesting to see the different developments that are taking place in the market at the moment. It's very interesting. Yeah. And do you get time uh, to experiment with this stuff? Because I imagine there's an element of no, there's a there's a part of this knowing about the technology, but then there's also getting your kind of hands on it and going, do you know what? See what we we'll do with this. Um, I used to have a bit more time for R and D than I do now. Uh, currently, it's a lot less because of you know the explosion and of the popularity of the, our flagship product that we've got. But I mean, I've got three or four other products that I'm also busy shaping and getting ready for market as well. Um, and in and amongst that, we're trying to keep up with the tech in terms of everything from, like we said, RPA, AI, machine learning. Um, we're staying very much in tune with VR and AR because we quite, we have quite a strong and passionate in-house VFX and uh, 3D team. So it's been it's been interesting times to try and keep ahead of that. Plus, fun time to sleep. Plus, fun fun to carry on with the product that we run. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not enough hours in a day, you know. Oh no. Uh, I, again, using the. Uh, um, Doctor Who analogy: You need a TARDIS to go into and do some do some stuff, you know. Um, exactly right. That That's nice, it. Yeah. It'd be perfect. Yeah. You know, spend a few minutes. Well, spend a few years in there, pop out again. Um, yeah. And coming on to your leadership, what leadership style has worked for you? What hasn't worked for you, and what does work for you now? Um, my my leadership style, uh, I've I've had to do two different types um, in the different industries that I've worked on. So it's been an interesting perspective to be able to look between them. Um, but the one that works best for me is the one that I have now is where I'm very much hands-on. Um, so I'm in there with my team. I am, if we're working later, we're working weekends, which happens, you know, fairly often when you're launching new products, then I'll be up with the guys till two in the morning or working the Sunday and the Monday. Um, and I've found that having an open door policy as opposed to a very authoritative um, hierarchical based policy has, has served me well because I have a much 
greater rapport with my team. Um, they know that if they're stuck, they can come to me without fear of reproach. If there's a problem, I found they raise their hands way early in advance instead of trying to, you know, not tell you about it and try and fix it on their own, which usually doesn't get fixed. And then right at yes. the time of the deadline, when you don't have time anymore to fix it, it then becomes too late. So many times that has actually saved us rather than hindered us. Brilliant. And if you kind of describe your leadership uh, as a purpose, I mean, is there a purpose behind your leadership and that drives the way in which you lead? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a twofold is I'm trying to get the best value out of everything that I'm involved in. So, you know, I want I want the best productivity out of my team. I don't want the guys working at, at 60% when they can be working at 90. But also I want to, it's like I said earlier that the industry that is, is very cutthroat. There's a lot of other competition that's out there. And if you're not at the front and if you're not bringing the best, then you're going to get left behind or you're going to get up minimal section of the market share. So my purpose is is to just get the best out of it as much as I can. Brilliant. Love it. And uh, and I guess I, I can imagine that the environment, the kind of culture that you got there is very dynamic. So when I used to work in uh, restaurants, we used to kind of have this word called the hustle, you know, is where we're moving around. There's a lot of kind of dynamic, getting things done, seeing what works mm. and what have you. I can imagine it's very much like that. So people are always, there's always something to do, you know, there's always something that needs to get Completely. Oh yeah, yeah. When we're, I mean, as part of a business and part of a product, uh, they share a lot of. There's a lot of synergy between the different departments, and then each of them have aspects of themselves which are unique in and amongst, in and to themselves. So when you're trying to launch a product like we're doing, the, the one that we're doing, it's not just the code. It's also about the polish. It's about the market. It's about how do you? We, we know that our platform is feature rich by far compared to the bulk of our competitors, but. If you don't tell that story and if you don't connect with the everyman, no one's going to know about it. No one's going to care. So what I've found is that you, you need a quite a diverse range of people in order to, to make that all happen. Um, you have to have beautifully crafted environments. You have to have a really dynamic and easy to understand narrative, but you have to have the use, the ease of use of your software or your product needs to be really, really good. And that's true for any industry or any product. If, if people can't use it and don't enjoy using it, they're not going to come back. Yes. Then it also needs to be stable and it needs to actually work. It needs to, it needs to be functional so that people use it and understand it and can rely on it. And then above all other things that we found is that it's got to actually solve a problem. Like unless you're just there for entertainment, um, if you're trying to solve a problem in this specific industry, then you have to have tools which directly address it and give the user an option that they would prefer over something else. Excellent clarity. I think that's very true. You know, and that becomes your kind of uh, um, well, it becomes the mission. You know, that's the thing that we're trying to solve and and making mm -hmm. sure that happens. Coming onto your teams, then as part of your leadership, what do you do to kind of uh, create the best teams that uh, that deliver the the best value quickly? And, and obviously most elegant solutions. Well, it comes back down to the, the planning aspect of everything is, is you've got to understand what problem you're solving and then you have to have the best possible solution in place in order to solve it. So once you know those things, once you've explored them at a, at a high level and you've started to design around that, you can very quickly plan out what you're building. And then by doing that correctly, you can then plan out who you need to build it. So we follow that process of the virtual lab quite strongly where, you know, our recruitment process is quite intense. We, we don't just hire the first guy that we find off the, the street. And every time that I am looking for a new resource, we, we have quite a big multidisciplinary team. So we have 3D modelers, we have animators, we have graphic artists, we have backend developers, we've got full stacks, we've got game developers, we've got uh, just set up software coders, we've got data scientists, like 
it is it is very diverse and very complex. So understanding the role and understanding what their purpose is, um, very important to to manage and to recruit. But then also understanding who this person is and how do they fit into the ecosystem or the culture. Um, it doesn't help you get someone who's ridiculously uh, talented in terms of skill, but it's just a bad fit. Whether or not you know they're a negative or a positive person, there's usually there's a culture fit that has to work for the team to gel really well. Um, especially if you're working on quite an intense high pressure uh, project and you're going to be in the trenches with these people, you're going to want to make sure that you get the right guys in off the, off the offset. Yeah, great, great stuff. And what's your kind of mix of teams? Because a lot of tech leaders have, uh, they augment their teams in lots of different ways and flavors. What's, um, what's, what's worked for you or hasn't worked for you in the past? Um, so what we do is we we have a lot of uh, different disciplines. So the multidisciplinary focus of our teams is the first aspect. So there's a lot of specialization that you need to take the sort of products that we have on the go and make them work. Um, having generalists does help to fill in gaps. But if you're looking to do something really bespoke, then you need a couple of different types of people. So the, the, all the characters that I mentioned earlier. And a lot of the time what you find um, based on the schedule that you've got is that you might only need some of those resources for a short period of time and for other guys you need there for the long run to run the marathon with you so we have a mix of core permanent staff we have um, specialist contractors who come in as and when needed and then when there's large volumes of work that come in um, to key areas of the product timeline then we will recruit for a period of two or three months to get extra support and then release again when the guys are no longer needed yeah that's right yeah so you it's um, it's an ability to kind of throttle up and down uh, as as per your need, and yeah, yeah. sorry, oh, well, yeah. Uh, well, the, I think you need that because um, depending on the the timeline of your of your development and how you get from A to B, um, you know, each product that you that you plan out beforehand will have a specific budget and a specific timeline. And the different areas in the market are well suited to that. So, for example, uh, we did try and employ a contract and convert them to full-time once-off, but we found that some of these individuals don't like that. They, they prefer to be able to jump from team to team because that's how they grow. That's how they get at a much more diverse skill set. And then you get other guys who only want to focus on one specific thing and just get better and better and better at it. And they are better suited to long-term employment. And we found in like I said, there's a number of projects we have on the go, and there is a there is a there is a place for everyone in that mm -hmm. sort of pipeline. Brilliant, excellent, and engineering challenges that you're facing. What's um what are the uh, challenges that you've got at the moment? Um, there, there's a few. There's some of the some of the some of it would be resource driven. Um, because of COVID, um, we've seen that industries have have risen and fallen around um the capability of how people can work. So the hospitality is a good example that has for a year all but collapsed in the UK and globally. Like no one could go out, no one could eat, uh, chefs weren't required, front of house staff weren't needed. So there was a big vacuum there, but everyone who could work remotely and you know the explosion of digital services and innovation in the tech sector meant that all of your, your remote workers were snatched up. And then there yep. was a vacuum there. It was really difficult to find proper network engineers um, who were trained and had experience in the, in the area. Um, the second thing is because the technologies had to change in the industry, the the platforms and the tools which which the developers and or public can use, we found limitations very quickly. Like the a 3D avatar based platform, you can only you can develop it till the cows come home 
based on the hardware that you have um, on a standard desktop, Mac or PC. But to try and replicate that in a browser is all but impossible because there's such limitation to browser technology as to what it can render, how it comp computes things. Um, and when you start working with physics and lighting and shadows, uh, you know, browsers are only, only so, so important. In that sphere, we know that with the advent of things like um, browser 3.0 and 5G, that's going to help change that landscape. And you're finding that products like what we're making is very limited to what's available as a platform to develop on. Yeah, that's right. You're waiting for the other tools to kind of catch up and uh, create the uh, the required sort of environment and space and ability yeah. uh, for you. Um, yeah. Here you go. Is an interesting question. As a tech leader, what keeps you up at night? What's the thing that plays on your mind hmm, that's tricky um i, I usually it, it's solving problems uh, so if i'm looking at it internally um for our company it's there, there's there's a number of different projects like i've said a few times now that we're working on and i'm always thinking about how do we solve the next problem and we solve this problem and two others pop up so <laughs> while that's suited well to my mindset i'm constantly just solving different rubik's cubes and you know chinese puzzle boxes where uh, I, fi I fix one and then it opens up and it gives me another puzzle inside but I, I quite like that it's just sometimes it's a bit challenging um what keeps me up at night externally um to the market is first off the uncertainty with covid um at, you know at the time of our recording now a lot of companies uh, companies countries are coming out of lockdown but then you have the crisis that's in india you know, so that, that they're in more trouble than any of the other countries around the world have been through since the start of the pandemic. Um, if that had to spread, uh, then, you know, countries go back into lockdown again, developers go back into the same thing. If things open up, what does the future look like? It's, it's a little bit uncertain because there's no going back to the way things were in some aspects. It's forever changed um, the course mm. of human history, which is a really weird thing to say on a podcast with sincerity. It's not a sci-fi novel you know, novel, yeah. this is real life. Um, yeah, and it's just the uncertainty of what's going to be happening means that you've got to play guessing games and you've got a whole range of other puzzles you're going to try and solve without knowing, having all the pieces. Yeah. I imagine you do a lot of thinking. You're a real thinker. I, I am. And it's it's tricky to, again, because the only thing that I don't have is time. So uh, because I'm constantly on the calls with the guys or I'm, I'm speaking with clients or I'm doing something, um, to forward the stuff. I don't have as much time to sit down as I would like and just think through some things, um, start planning for the next phase of development, you know, two or three years down the line. Because I always try and make sure that I'm not just thinking about only right now, but how does what I'm building now impact what I'm going to do in a year's time or five years time? Yeah, you see, um, we've referred to uh, tech leaders as a kind of time lords. You're, you have to, um, oh, that's a second uh, Doctor Who analogy in the same podcast. Um, <laughs> But, but you're having to kind of cater for what's come, uh, what has been, uh, what what's happening now and the future. So, you, I mean, that's quite a challenge to see the, those different time uh, perspectives, you know. Yeah. And, and, how, and how do you solve that? Because uh, I'm kind of curious because I struggle with th things like that myself sometimes as a leader. Um, the biggest thing that I can do is ask questions. Uh, and I ask questions of anyone like people actually get annoyed if, if I'm in a training course I'll be the guy with my hand up 50 times because if I don't understand it or if I have okay that question answered two but it asked it get presented another three how does that work and how does that work um, there is no knowledge that is not power I remember that off an old Mortal Kombat cartridge uh, Raiden was one of his catchphrases on Mortal Kombat 2 and I, that resonated with me when I was even a teenager because I believe if you ask enough questions 
you're going to get more questions to answer. But when someone asks you a question, there's a good chance you've heard the answer read and you've been able to factor that into your planning. Um, so when I ask questions, it's like, uh, what is the tech going to do tomorrow? What is the presentation of tech in five years time? What does that do for my roadmap? What are my developers doing now? How mm -hmm. can I change the, the, the base of code to be future proof so that it adopts that other stuff? How difficult is that going to be? How much time do I need to change that above? What is the market going to need? What are the projections currently there? How wrong are those projections? Like you can go down the rabbit hole and never really get out. Yeah. 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 I suppose you, there's a point at which you, you built up a um, good enough picture, which actually brings me to a, an interesting point around how do you get your teams to align to what's going on in your head? You know, because you've got this vision, you've got this direction. Are there any tips that you can give to tech leaders out there around how you nav help people navigate that? Yeah, um, there, there's two actually. One would be uh, using mind maps. I, I live and breathe mind maps all the time. And <laughs> what I've found is as something comes in my head, because because my mind works quite quickly, like I'll, I'll think through and I'll think and I'll think and I'll think and then I'll try and go back six thoughts and go, oh, I can't remember what I was thinking there. So I'm, I'm, I'm usually like sitting on my phone making notes or I'll sit at my, my desk while I'm in a meeting. I'll just make a few notes if something pops up. But I build these big mind maps so that I can then, second tip is just always, be communicating abc um i will have a daily meeting with my guys i will listen to them if they have issues i will factor in their input into my mind maps and then i will communicate that with them and then share it with them i'm like guys go go to town i'll have a master copy for myself but i you know give the mind map to your team and see what they do with it because nine out of ten times they're looking at it um a little bit differently to you yeah it it, it raises for me the the the, the communication aspect is quite important because if you had to present a problem, problem A, you, you put in front of it a number of different people and you get three different recipients to try and solve that problem. If recipient one is a doctor and recipient two is an engineer and recipient three is an actor, they're all going to give you a different solution to the problem because people solve problems based on the toolkits that they have, based mm -hmm. on their perceptions of the problem and based on their experience. And if you're only looking at one person's answer, you're only going to get you know 30% of the potential solution. But if you're looking at everyone, even if one of the people don't solve it correctly, you might get insight from the second person that you wouldn't have had before. And that only makes your product better. It makes your ability to make decisions better. And if you're constantly communicating with your team, everyone is learning together in a big circle, which to me is quite powerful. Brilliant. Love it. Great, some great tips there. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> and being somebody that's really into reading and books and learning from other authors, what books would you recommend to tech leaders out there that have kind of crossed your path and been game changers for you? Um, the two, uh, the two that I would recommend are uh, the set called Disciplined Entrepreneurship: uh, Twenty Four Steps to a Successful Startup by Bill Allett, and he is one of the associate professors at MIT uh, for entrepreneurship and MIT Sloan. He co-authored one of the bootcamp courses that I attended in uh, Tokyo in 2019 with MIT. And he details quite an easy to follow roadmap on how to scale a startup from concept idea to you know acquiring funding and doing it through a systematic approach that works more often than not. Yeah. Um, and then the second one's an oldie but a goldie, uh, the <laughs> Blue Ocean Strategy. I think everyone oh, yeah. should read that book. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I've got it on my shelf, but I've not read it. So oh. there you go. I've been prodded. I'm going to read that, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's a good one. But thank you for sharing those. And yeah. um, any advice then following on from that to uh, aspiring tech leaders? What would you say to them? 
Um, anyone who wants to get into the game, I say now's the time. Uh, technology is only evolving. And the sooner you get on and start riding the wave, the more you'll learn and the more you'll realize how much you don't know. Um, and the second bit of advice around that is if you have an idea in your head, you know, explore it and, 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 and really, really chase it until you can't chase it anymore. Like listen to people and get good advice, but also you need to find the balance within yourself to get good advice and take constructive criticism without taking it personally, but also ignore the naysayers when everyone tells you it can't be done, it can't be done, it can't be done. Because they, again, that perception of the problem, they might just not have the idea or the vision that you do. Don't, don't drop your dream. Brilliant. Don't drop your dream. There you go. That's a nice quote. Um, and I'm going to pretend to be a tech genie for a second. Imagine that I'm blue and I'm coming out of a a uh, polished golden lamp. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, what, what, and I'm going to offer you a tech leadership wish. What would that wish be? One tech leadership wish. I would say I want to see the roadmap. I want to see every press release when it comes to tech for the next 10 years. I want to know exactly how it's coming and when, when it's coming. Brilliant. That's, that's great. And uh, yeah, and then, and then okay, there's a, a follow-on question from that then. So let's say, for example, you've got all that. How would you use your time? Because obviously you're a very busy man. Would you, would you kind of go off into a laboratory and start experimenting with all this stuff? Yeah, in a heartbeat. Like, I, I think a big a big portion of where, where I'm passionate about what I do is that I get to get products from conception. So you know, you have an idea and you and you get it out there, you build it up, and you it's almost like like having a kid that is eventually is walking on its own and starting to talk on its own. You've got to send it to daycare, and someone else starts helping you raise this this little um, creation that you that you've made, and that allows you to then, oh, I've got free time at home now. What do I do? And you can then start working on the next one. And I've, I've got a small little red book with the next 20 ideas that I want to start working on. I just need now the time to put them into action. Yeah, you need that TARDIS. We need to make that TARDIS. Oh, give me oh, yeah. one. Give me one. <laughs> and um, uh, the final question, um, statement on that, really, uh, when you kind of come up with these ideas, are you very good at delegating them down? So, for example, you get them going and then kind of delegate the concept or the vision of what that's trying to achieve, or do you kind of keep your final hands in there? Do you ro- keep your sleeves rolled up? A bit of both. Uh, I, I, what I try and do is balance it out and be there when I'm needed, but be able to de- delegate when I'm not. Um, sometimes I have a little bit of trouble letting go uh, because, again, you've spent every waking moment for a year on something. You, it's very hard to just suddenly switch off and give it to someone else because yes. you're still in that 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 routine of busy building and creating. But at the same time, I quite enjoy the ability to delegate to people who are competent and specialists in what they do because that allows me the time that I desperately require to go back and think and plan and R&D and strategize the next phase. That's great, yeah. And uh, any tips around how how you do let go of your baby? Because this is something that a lot of uh, techies, well, I think every anybody has. You know, we're like mothers to our creations. So, how would you let go? Um, I I try and see from where I am now and the way I wanted to be in two years' time. And then I I you know no one person can do everything. Even Elon Musk, even Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, they had a team around them and their ability to delegate and to hand over and to ask for advice and to recognize they don't know everything is one of the reasons that they're as successful as they are. And I think if you can take the lessons from the people who have made it, nine out of 10 times it'll work for you as well. It's just trusting other people and then keeping an eye on it. Don't like let them run away with it and just do whatever they want, but trust. Yeah. Brute trust. Yeah. That that uh, that beautiful gem, uh, that all organised foundations of great organisations, and um, again, finally, then a key takeaway for tech leader men and women out there: what would be the one thing you'd say 
in as we part our ways in uh, this podcast? I would say um, don't don't ever give up because it is a lonely road when you're sitting at two in the morning sitting in front of your keyboard and you can't think about the next line of code and everything's a little bit fuzzy but if you want it enough and you need it enough it'll happen just stick with it and keep going great words to finish on thank you for that and uh thank you for your time then wayne and uh look forward to speaking to you again soon oh thank you for having me well talk about a man on a mission a serial entrepreneur with boatloads of go get em spirit This is one of the reasons why I love doing CTO Confessions. You get to meet lots and lots of energetic, go-get-em tech leaders. I also love how Wayne's journey led him to tech leadership. A mechanical engineer turned tech wizard. A tech leader with one foot in the tech world and the other in the business domain, seeing the bigger picture and the potential out there. And here's a quote that I particularly love from the podcast. Building teams based just on skill and talent is a recipe for failure. Surround yourself and your employees with characters, especially the kind that can stick it out when the going gets tough. There you go. Love it. So what were your key takeaways? Here are mine. My first key takeaway is that building teams is much more than just matching needs to skills. There's a whole art to it. And once you create them, these high-performing teams, they pay dividends over and over and over again. My second key takeaway is something that's come up a few times with various tech leaders. It's all about asking the right questions. You can lead with questions. Ask the right questions of your team and they will find the way. And thirdly and finally, I love this one. A story is the foundation on which a product is sold. Humans love stories. Create a story around your product and people will be drawn to it. So thank you, Wayne. Thank you for your time. It was great having you on board. And good luck to you and the Virtue Lab in ongoing success. May the virtual force be with you, sir. Thank you. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long. Live well and prosper until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.